Well, good evening. Now, apologies, I did not run off enough uh, copies of my uh, notes today. As always, a copy will be sent around, so I'll send it, I'll polish it up, send it to Todd, he'll send it uh, over. I noticed that uh, generally most of the people who don't have notes are on this side of the room, so you'll have to uh, pay extra hard attention tonight. (laughs) Uh, But with that said, uh, why don't we open up in prayer and then we'll make a start. Dear Blessed Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to wrestle with your word. Uh, Father, we recognize from within it contains so much for us, Father. We, we recognize that you have spoken on so many different things. Uh, we recognize, of course, that the preeminence of the gospel, but Father, we also recognize that there are many other areas you have touched upon and you have not wasted your breath. So Father, help us to be diligent students of your word, wrestling with all parts of it and recognizing that all of it is for us. In your son's most blessed name, amen. All right, so I'll just make it the same type of qualifications I made last time, uh, which is a fact, of course, this is not a sermon, it's a lecture. So, of course, there's no, not going to be as much uh, exhortative elements to this. But I will also state that this being week two of, week, of five weeks, is very much a layering type of exercise. So there's going to be a a decent amount of overlap between what I covered tonight and what I covered last time. And the point of that is, of course, is we're building foundations. And from that, we can understand more, of of course, not only about the doctrine of the church overall, but particularly what we as Baptists hold. Uh, Because it's important to recognize we didn't just spring up out of nowhere. We came very much out of the 17th century, and uh, tonight particularly we'll be covering some of the issues that the the first Baptist in the 17th century had to go through. Uh, And some of that may not necessarily make sense tonight, but as we go into further weeks and actually unpack what it does mean when it comes to the ordinances, when it comes to uh, what we do as a church when we gather on the Lord's Day, things like that will make sense uh, will help make sense of what we're covering. So if some of it goes over your head tonight, that's fine. All right. So let me just put that as a qualification. So just as a recap, so if we take a step back and we remember what we covered uh, two weeks, I believe it was two weeks ago. Uh, I have in my notes last week, so obviously I'm a, I'm a week behind. Uh, thanks, Todd, for covering. Um, but la- last week we covered the understanding that God has, through the pages of Scripture, been gathering a people for himself. The story, this story, decide Edmund Clowney, did not start at Bethlehem's manger. It begins in the Garden of Eden, when God promises that the son of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. It continues in God's promise to Abraham, made with an oath, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. Israel... God's Old Testament people were not uh, were not only the initial recipients of the promise, as we covered last week, they were also the vessels in which the promise, that is, Christ, came forth through uh, to all peoples. And, of course, with God's people being expanded upon uh, and extended to include the Gentiles. The church, then, is the name of the institution and the realization of God's people in the New Testament. 
Unlike Israel and the old, it is not ethnically or geographically bound and comprises, of course, of both Jew and Gentile. We would, of course, do well to remember that the church was initially comprised of almost exclusively Jews. That's always a helpful reminder. We look out today and we're like, okay, where's the Jews? But when when the church actually was founded, almost exclusively the, in the partakers of the church, the first believers within the church, were Jewish. And as such, uh, that's helpful to, rem- uh, to remember. Uh, and of course, that expanded to include the Sumerians uh, and finally the Gentiles. And that's very much a physical visualization of the spiritual expansion of God's people. So as we understand that God's people in the Old Testament was in the nation of Israel and the believers within, and that expanded to include the Gentiles, we kind of see a physical manifestation of that through how the gospel went forth, Jews, Samaritans, and then to the ends of the earth. But how did God's people assemble? Churches were congregations of Christians that intentionally and visibly met within local areas for the sake of mutual edification and for the reading and carrying out collectively of God's word. These local churches, i.e. at Corinth, at Rome, or in Galatia, comprised together the visible church. Yet local congregations and specifically believers also had a much more important membership. That is to the invisible church which is, as we covered last time, the spiritual assembly that stretches beyond space and time to include all saints, past, present, and future, that will one day, not yet, but will one day gather in its fullness. So that's the recap from last time. Now, that the local church in Scripture is evident that it was... um, that it was a body of believers that gathered purposely for worship and edification is clear within Scripture. We see within Acts, as Albie read for us earlier, of the first church which was which met in Jerusalem. And that as the apostles and the disciples evangelized, more people were added. We see it in Acts uh, 2, verse 41, verse 47, chapter 5, verse 14. And believers met and were continuously, uh, they met continuously, and what did they do? They were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were together and held all things in common. They gathered every day, verse 44, so if we're looking at Acts 2, uh, and met not only in the designated meeting place of Solomon's colonnade, which we find out about in Acts 5, which was located, Solomon's colonnade was, uh, was located in the outer court within the temple, so they kept meeting within the bounds of the temple in the outer courts. And um, But also we, we find out through Acts 2 that they not only met together regularly in the temple, in Solomon's colonnade, they also met within private houses. Uh, in all, as individuals became believers, they intentionally gathered. You became a believer, what was the natural response to that? You met with other believers. You were joined with other believers. And so they intentionally gathered in worship, in dedication to the word of God. That's the apostles' teaching. What did the apostles teach? They taught what they themselves had been taught by Christ as well as from the Old Testament. And into the enacting of uh, the word of God, which is to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, we'll 
unpack some of that in weeks to come. Uh, so much of that we, we will return to later. However, for our particular purposes here tonight, the congregation was understood as an intentional body that gathered. Again, believers met intentionally to worship God, to build each other up into the likeness of Christ Jesus. And, and, and again, this was an intentional body that gathered for these purposes together. Again, corporately, there's, you can't gather as a church by yourself. That's just the reality. Um, note uh, Acts 4, verse 11, as it refers to the church of Jerusalem as the whole church. At that one point, that was, in many respects, they gathered together to comprise the whole church, but very much also, at that point in time, they were the only church. Um, so, logically referring to the local church, it's likely it could also have been said to be the whole church at that point. The congregation is also comprised of only believers, Right, that's an important um, that's an important statement, and I'll be referring to that again throughout this evening. That is also comprised of only believers. Note the language. If you look at Acts two, if you look at Acts four, as Luke describes the church, he describes only believers. When he's talking about the church, that is the assembly which gathers, he's only referring to those individuals who believe, who by faith met together. Literally, those who believe as being involved. Now, as churches emerged from the reign of persecutions that dominated the first several centuries, uh, because, again, when the church started, there was a lot of persecution. Christianity was uh, very much a persecuted um, group, and and that continued to be the case for the first few centuries up until the fourth century when Christians started receiving privilege. They started being able to receive freedom to worship and to be able to gather together. Uh, they were gathering already underground, but they, they were able to do so publicly. And this really uh, took off and commenced with the Edict of Milan in 315 AD. But as Christians now emerged from the shadows, emerged from the per- being persecuted, they now had to face the new predicament of a Christian society that was brand new. And the fact that now almost increasingly more and more people identified themselves as being a follower of Christ this in the society was a brand new concept. And so having to wrestle with that was a very much a new predicament, especially as what that meant for the church. Because as, the, as societies became much more and more Christianized, there was also an expectation, a social expectation, that attendance in the church was... A normality. You're in the Christian society. You should be going to church. You're not going to church. You're the only person in a, in a village not going to church. Why is that? So to avoid any stigma, what do you do? You go to church. Now, while the division of churches into parishes—that's geographical uh, areas—under the undersight of a bishop, which was um, bishops being separated from pastor, elder, very. Uh, very early on, around the second century, Ignatius, uh, for example, the church started forming in a way which aligned with political uh, institutions. So, for example, in the Roman Empire, you have different governors of different territories, and then along in a similar, in a very similar manner or very similar fashion, what ends up happening is they end up having bishops who are designated as higher than, uh, than pastors or elders. And those bishops themselves start ruling from a spiritual sense, geographical areas like the Roman governors. So you start having a secular institution 
which is geographically based, but then you start ending up with more of a spiritual institution also, which is also geographically based in how they in the authority which goes with that. Now, the alignment with or imitation of secular governmental structures was something that became increasingly the standard from the church from the 4th century onwards. By the medieval period, which I, I date it from 476 to 1500, historian, or, uh, historians differ as to when exactly the, uh, the years that the medieval period covered, but as for tonight, that's the period I'm going with. Uh, but by the medieval period from, with, from which the Reformation commenced, it was such that, as one person noted, that church government in that era was far removed from biblical ecclesiology. Medieval popes usually failed to comprehend the extent uh, to which the hierarchical government of the Western church limited, imitated secular imperial structures that had been around long before the rise of a strong papacy. So again, Roman Catholicism at that point just imitated the governmental structures of the time. Now, from a congregational level then, churches were seen as containing every person who physically attended, regardless of their spiritual state. Uh, from a structural level, as we mentioned, bishops dominated the structure of the church, a point, again, that we'll re return to when we talk about the government of the church and pastors and elders and, and deacons. Um, but within the 16th century, wrestling with ecclesiology by the Anglicans, the Presbyterians, and the Congregationalists, the main point of contention between all three of these different groups was how was the church to be seen? How was the church to be constituted? Uh, the influence of Reformation and thought, and especially the, the, thought, uh, the thinking and writings of Martin Luther and John Calvin, uh, meant that on the importance of the visible congregation, they both wrote about the fact that congregations were ones which were visible, as in um, local churches were indeed a manifestation of the, uh, of the visible church. Uh, and they ensured that all of these different groups, despite where they end up landing, all of them had a general understanding to cite Article 19 of the Anglican 39 Articles, that the, vi that the visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinances in all those things that of necessity are requisite to the same. So, again, if you just unpack what the 39 uh, articles are saying there, is that the congregation itself is a visible church of Christ and its congregation is of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacram uh, sacraments are ministered. That doesn't really change. Despite where all these groups end up, that's a fairly common understanding of what the church looks like. But with, whether the visible church truly was only to be comprised of local autonomous congregations or as part of a greater uh, entity or organism was a different question altogether. Remember, at that point in time, before the Reformation, the church was, at least in the West, the Church of Rome. Right? If, you were, if you wanted to be in fellowship with the true church, you could only be so by being in fellowship with the Pope. If you weren't in fellowship with the Pope, you weren't part of a true of the true one and true church. And so being that that was what they understood, when the Reformation hit England, and uh, as many of you are probably aware how that came about with Henry VIII wanting to divorce his wife for 
some Anglicans did, uh, tried to deny that's one of the reasons which led to the cause and um, commencement of the Church of England, but it was pretty much a significant cause. Um, but Henry VIII, King Henry VIII, wanted to divorce his wife. The Pope wouldn't allow, allow him, so he said, okay, then I don't need a Pope anymore. I'll be the head of the new English church. And so rather than just being this one visible entity of the Roman church, Catholic church, which spread all across Western Europe, in England, the one true church was the Anglican church. And to be in a true church in England was to be in fellowship with the church of England, which the Anglicans. Um, So... for those, uh, for those individuals trying to wrestle with, okay, what is a church? Is it a local autonomous church like we are here tonight? Or what, is it being part of this bigger entity, right? These are things that, the, uh, that Christians in the 17th century, they're trying to wrestle through. What is the church? And um, many wondered whether the universal, that's again the universal, the, uh, the church which involved uh, basically all Christians everywhere, um, or otherwise known as the Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic Church, but Catholic Church in its proper context, could be um, visible as to the structure, uh, a visible structure that um, could be seen as one huge entity was something that, again, they, they really had to wrestle with. Now, the question of the, the, the question of a national church, right? so that you'll see the header, header there, the immediate context of this and of understanding what is a national church, this idea that the church could be a visible structure of multiple congregations together was something that, that many Christians within, the, uh, within England at that time had to wrestle with. And why Rome wasn't necessarily what they were thinking of. They were thinking of the Anglican church at that time. So not Rome, but Canterbury and York, the bishops of Canterbury and York. Um, and in that, that they were wrestling with the idea of a national church was done in light of the already existing uh, existence of a national church of England. Because Henry VIII has a church, and that's it. There it is. What do you do with that? Is that an actual church? Is that a national church? Do you ha- to be a, a proper church, do you have to be in fellowship with them? Uh, whilst being a byproduct of the Reformation, because again, Anglicanism is, is a Protestant um, tradition, there's a Reformed tradition. No one can uh, truly deny that. But whilst being a byproduct of the Reformation, about, uh, although in a distinct way, uh, when you look at all the other denominations which sprung up around the same time, Anglicanism was a departure away from Roman Catholicism on the matter of soteriology, praise God, um, but, continued with, but they continued with many of Rome's liturgical and ecclesiological practices. And again, they had bishops and archbishops very much inherited from the Roman Catholic model. Uh, some, of the, some of how they preached, how, even how they under, uh, under, uh, understood what garments they needed to wear, stuff like that, they took very much from the Roman Catholic model. Uh, but when it came to how Christians were saved... Entirely and utterly reformed in understanding that it was only by faith alone, uh, by grace alone. This made Anglicanism, though, a halfway blend in some ways bet- between Rome and Geneva. Yet, roundly Protestant uh, itself uh, being informed by both Lutheranism and Calvinism, but uh, utterly a, a Protestant understanding being a primary matters of faith. 
However, because of the way that the, that the Church of England came about, it didn't come about from the, very much from a grassroots level of people wanting to reform the church. There were individuals who did, but it was very much driven from a top-down understanding that, okay, we're pushing Rome out of the picture, we're taking over, the, we're t I'm going to uh, restructure the church in accordance to the lines that I want, that's Henry VIII, uh, what he wants. And as such, there's, uh, you have this blend of... Protestant and Catholic um, traditions, but you also have a holdout of Anglican ministers who aren't particularly Protestant. They're still Roman, they still hold to Roman Catholic belief. In fact, if anybody understands homilies, the book of, uh, book of homilies, the reason why the Anglicans uh, came, uh, came up with that resource and issued it to all the parish churches around was so that all the, all the ministers had to pr uh, preach from the book of homilies, right? Because, which was a Protestant, you know, uh, Protestant, uh, a bunch of Protestant messages and, and sermons and teaching, which, because at that point in time, a lot of the ministers within the Anglican Church, the Church of England, weren't Protestant, and the pro but the bishops and the, and the people in control were, and they didn't have enough manpower to resource each and every parish church in England. So to make sure that the ministers were actually, actually teaching the proper things, here, teach from this book. So that's how that came about. Uh, but because as you've got this holdover of Anglican ministers who are still positively predisposed to Rome and the continuing liturgical practices, which were seen as popish, uh, those who were aligned with Reformation ideals were discontent with the way that the Church of England looked. It still looked and smelt like Rome to them. And as such, you had individuals who came in wanting to purify the Church of England. Uh, these individuals became known as the Puritans. Right? They wanted to go in there and purify, uh, purify the church and conform it to a much more of a reformed church to re remove all and any lasting vestiges of any kind of Roman Catholic hangovers. Um, so that, again, they wanted to bring the church into alignment with perceived scriptural patterns. The degrees of how the Church of England was seen uh, to be at odds with scripture and whether it was actually seen as a true church or if it was seen as um, seen as a, a, a false church or and it, whether it was a church that a person could in good conscious fellowship with varied from person to person at the time. Some people went, no, the Church of England, you can't do anything with them. They're not a true church. Others were much more kinder in their assessment of the Anglicans. Some Puritans attempted to reform the established church from within and others decided to separate entirely from it. Now, this very much led to the rise of Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism between uh, 1641 and 1654 uh, became the dominant faction at this period of time in England. And uh, particularly after the outbreak of the English Civil War with King Charles I, which eventually leads to his beheading, and uh, again, the rise of Presbyterianism uh, as a, a religious faction which wants to purify the practices of the Church of England and bring it in more in alignment to Scripture facilitates the Westminster Assembly. It's uh, uh, something that most of you have probably heard of. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a product of the Westminster Assembly of the Divines, which met uh, for a 10-year period between 1643 in 1653 and comprised of theologians and politicians who both wanted to restructure the
the Church of England. And uh, at one point comprising as many as 121 ministers. Now, so again, you've got these Presbyterians, they're wanting to go into the church, remove any vestiges of, of things which are unbiblical. Right? They want to bring it forth to much more of a biblical understanding of how the church ought to look. And as part of these ecclesiastical reforms, the Westminster Assembly attempted to wrestle with the idea of a national church. And as to whether the, the, a national church uh, was something which w- was a, a, a more or less a reflection of the universal church, that the universal church could be something which was seen visibly as a singular organic national entity. So as opposed to small independent local churches that know it's one big entity, the the, local, the national church, which meets in the UK or in, in England, is one church, and that's the proper church. And so the, the Presbyterians in the Westminster Assembly attempting to wrestle with this idea, and the Presbyterian majority continuing with the Anglicans prior argued for this to be the case, that there is such thing as a national church. And the national church is the true church in the nation which all churches ought to be in fellowship with in order to be constituted a true church. Now, whilst there is some divergence between Presbyterian thought on this, most agreed that there was an understanding of the national church that effectively the universal church, rather than being an invisible reality, was also a visible one. So as we covered in our last, uh, as we covered in our last um, lecture, when you look at the universal church, it's comprised of all saints, right? All saints, all believers, right? In many ways, the universal church, which talks about all those who believe in Christ, who are together, um, not not necessarily physically but spiritually, uh, there, there, there's a bit of an overlap, you could say, between the universal the uh, the universal church and also the, the invisible church in many ways uh, you could just say that the invisible is all time you know uh, past present future whereas the visible church could be at any one time that, that, that if you wanted to make a distinction that could be uh, that could be it but if, but effectively the universal church rather than being an invisible reality was also a visible one it was a visible, structural, and political entity. So they're saying that the church is a huge be- uh, beast, which is a, a visible one, it's a structural one, it's a political one, that all, all congregations were, while in a way individual churches, were truly a part of the visible ch- uh, church by being part of this visible structure. So by being part of, in fellowship with this church, which is the greater body, this visible body, that's how you're seen as being a church, like being part of the true church. Now, it was believed that the church fundamentally was scripturally warranted to be structured in a way that biblical authority stemmed from the universal visible church uh, and that it trickled downwards to the local congregation. So the true church is this universal visible church that you can see. And through that being the true church, local congregations in fellowship with this national church, they themselves receive the authority to be churches by being in fellowship with this national church. Hopefully, you got. Uh, hopefully, that you saw that sunk in. All right. Um, uh, yeah. 
But the biblical authority stemmed from the universal uh, visible church and then trickled downwards to local congregations. Now, this authority resided in and was being stewarded by its officers, the ministers and the elders exercising authority over both local churches and members. So the authority, national church, right? And who actually stewards the authority? The ministers who have been appointed by the national church. They are the ones who actually manage the authority within the national church. Uh, the ministers and elders exercising authority over both local churches and its members through sessions, presbyteries, and synods as the assemblies of the church. So all these things, so, uh, so basically um, crash course in Presbyterian ecclesiology, you've got, a, you've got a, your local Presbyterian church. Uh, everybody knows, if everybody knows Peter Barnes, Reesby, that's Reesby, uh, he was the minister at Reesby Presbyterian. So Reesby Presbyterian is a, a local church. You have in, in within them, uh, within that church, you have one minister, who uh, you could say is the teaching elder, and then you have other elders who are considered ruling elders. Right? Those elders together, what do they form? They form a session. Now that session is the rule. The basically the ones who head up that local church. Now within a geographical area, right? There's all these sessions from these local churches, they gather together to form a presbytery. Right? And a presbytery is a, 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 an institution within the Presbyterian church which can make, make decisions. And then from the presbytery, you have greater presbyteries or even a synod, which meets once a year. Right? That can be done, so in the case of Reesby, which is part of the Presbyterian Church of Australia, the sessions feed into presbyteries, which feed into the national denomina- the state denomination, the Presbyterian Church of New South Wales, which itself reports into the Presbyterian Church of Australia, National Assembly. So again, that's a quick crash course through Presbyterian ecclesiology. But the reason, but the reason why I say that is they see all these institutions being together, comprising the church. That's an important distinction. Because what the, what the, uh, often they appealed to scripture in Acts 15 to the Council of Jerusalem, and the Presbyterians argued that the council showed firstly that the church was a singular entity. Uh, despite, despite them all going to meet in Jerusalem, these individuals who came from multiple churches throughout came together and they formed one church. And this is the Presbyterian argument. Uh, that, that showed that the church was a singular entity and that the authority from that council was for all those local churches because they all reported into as one visible church. Secondly, uh, that the, the council held binding authority over local congregations. So again, the Council of Jerusalem in Acts um, 15 demonstrates that the, uh, the, demonstrates that the agreements and decisions which were made were binding on local authorities, which means that there's an institution above the local congregation. Uh, with the individuals, when they look at Peter and James, they act, they're not acting as in their role or capacity as apostles, but rather as elders as regarding their authority. Therefore, they, this, being the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, provides a pattern as to how the church is to look and operate. So you have, an, you have obviously things and entities and organisms and institutions which sit above the local congregation. 
Now, this understanding that local congregations and their administrative and ruling organs are a singular entity, the church, continues to be the understanding of both Presbyterians and Anglicans today. They both hold to this understanding of the national church, right, which as a whole is visibly seen. So when you look at, for example, the name of the Anglican church or the Presbyterian church in, in, in Australia, what are they called? The Presbyterian church of Australia, not churches, but church. Together, they form the church. Anglican church, likewise. The Anglican church of Australia, not churches, church. Now, if you compare that to, um, if you compare that to the Baptist or the congregational underst- uh, denominations, what is the name of the Baptist, uh, the, the Baptist in New South Wales? The Baptist Association of New South Wales and ACT, as in Baptist churches which associate with each other. Or, when you look at the Congregationalists, the Fellowship of Congregational Churches. Congregational churches that fellowship. So you can already see there's there's a difference in understanding what comprises the church. The majority of congregationalists who were present at the Westminster Assembly, and indeed those outside of it as well, disagreed with this understanding of a singular body, a singular entity, which was, uh, which was an authoritative, universal, visible church. Uh, Joel Beakey and Mark Jones, they note that most congregationalists, however, affirmed the existence of a visible Catholic church, but denied that any structural political authority attached to it. Indeed, most congregationalists believed that a universal church was not a, simple, uh, a singular a visible entity, but rather that it comprised of individual congregations. Uh, so again, the universal church comprising of all saints any everywhere is something which is manifested or, and seen through uh, being comprised of individual congregations each with their own authority, not an authority derived from a central location, but each have their their own authority. Or as James Renahan uh, puts it, the universal church consists of the sum total of the parts, and the parts give visibility to the whole. Now, the authority, uh, the authority was believed by many proponents of congregationalism resided, as I said, not in a singular universal visible church, but rather in local congregations. Again, that's an important distinction. That's why it's repeated there. Uh, Henry Jacob, who was one of the first congregational ministers at this point in time, in fact, his church, located in London, was the first uh, church where the particular Baptist, as in, is the Calvinistic Baptist, they came forth from. Uh, his church um, in, uh, in congregation. But Henry Jacob argued, we believe that the nature and essence of Christ's true visible church under the gospel is a free congregation of Christians for the service of God or a true spiritual body containing no more ordinary congregations but one and independent. So again, what Henry Jacob is saying here is that the local church itself derives its own authority for, by it being a church already, uh, it's independent, and again, one congregation is itself a church. 
Now, the main text that was in dispute, so you have these Presbyterians, you have these Congregationalists, Anglicans, they're all arguing, okay, what is, what, uh, how is the church comprised of? How is it to look? And one of the main texts that they actually all appeal to during this time, which is not a passage that you often come across from an ecclesiological perspective uh, these days, is Matthew 16, 18 to 19. Now, Matthew 16, 18 to 19 goes, And I say, this is Jesus talking to Peter, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Now, the argument was, contrary to Roman Catholicism, uh, Roman Catholicism which asserts uh, Petrine um, priority here, which, you know, again, this is talking about the fact that uh, Peter was singled out to be the head of the church, and that was something which continued from all the popes thereforth. Uh, but rather than actually saying that, uh, the, the main argument amongst the Puritans at this time, uh, Congregationalists and Presbyterians, is, is whether Peter, in, uh, Peter, when he's uh, receiving this from Jesus, is he representing ministers by his role as an apostle, or is he representing the church, as expressed in local gatherings, when he was given the keys to bind and loose? Now, the Presbyterians argued that the keys, um, and that such keys were given only by a singular church entity um, that Peter represented. Uh, and that is to the ministers who hold the keys, right? The ministers steward the keys, which is given to that singular, visible, universal church. Congregationalists, on the other hand, argued that the keys, while some keys were given authoritatively to ministers, that the keys proper were giving to local congregations to bind and loose. This meant that rather than a top-down hierarchy with impositions such as in the Presbyterian and Episcopalian, that is, Anglican uh, model, uh, models, uh, that local congregations were uh, being imbued with such authority, could choose their own, but because they've got the keys and they can bind and loose, they could choose their own officers, they could refuse to admit unfit individuals into membership, and could enact with the participation of elders, church discipline. And some of these things we'll touch into more properly later onwards. Uh, but this is just showing you the main points of contention between the Presbyterian and Congregational model. But one of the most well-known proponents of this view being John Codden, um, a Puritan who emigrated to the colonies of New England uh, in the United States and who, who, despite being invited to be a delegate to the Westminster Assembly, he declined. He preferred le- uh, leaving... Um, his arguments in his, uh, to his writings, not in uh, face-to-face debates within the assembly itself. And Cotton's various works on congregational ecclesiology was to be widely influential, including uh, for the so-called Prince of the Puritans, John Owen. Uh, John Owen, by this point, uh, up until reading John Cotton, was a Presbyterian very early on, and he moves across to a congregational perspective after reading the works of John Cotton and the Keys to the Kingdom. Um, now, Cotton's view on this matter is such, and note Cotton's use of Catholic as universal. I just want to, I know I've made that qualification before, I'll just throw it out again. But the church to which the Lord Jesus committed the keys of the kingdom of heaven is Coetius Fidelium, commonly called a particular visible church, meeting together with common and joint consent 
into one congregation for public worship and mutual edification. It is not a more improbable sense of our Saviour's words to understand the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 16:9, of a particular visible church rather than of the Catholic visible church. For I do not read that the scripture doth anywhere acknowledge a Catholic visible church at all. The Catholic church is not a visible as a church, and the church that is visible is not Catholic. For though the whole church, or which is all one, the Catholic church, may be visible in her singular members, yet so they are not a church. Although it, might, it may be visible in several particular congregations, yet none of them is Catholic. So you can see he is making a distinction. Right? between this idea, of a univer- this idea of a universal visible church, you know, a national church, and this idea of the churches being local churches. And he's going in Scripture, when you're looking at the visible church in Scripture, it's only talking about local congregations, not talking about a huge, uh, a huge entity which itself is um, the ch- considered the church in lieu of smaller congregations, which meant... Or to put it differently, Cotton asserts that the keys were given to local churches, which are visible. Nowhere can the universal church, which we've defined previously, be seen in Scripture as a singular visible entity. What is visible in Scripture is not the universal church, for again, that is spiritual, uh, presently invisible and future realized, but local churches, and they are treated as uh, physically and visibly stand alone. Yet while spiritually Catholic or connected, again, uh, even through, and uh, I think we touch on it here, after all the apostles such as Paul traveled to the different churches, the church of the Thessalonians, to the church of God that is in Corinth, and so forth and so forth. Every time you look at a Pauline epistle, which is directed towards the church, you see he'll go to the church here, to the churches that meet in Galatia. And so what what Paul's, uh, what uh, Cotton's getting at when he appeals the scripture is that when you look at how Scripture itself deals with the visible church, as in the church that you actually see, it's always local congregations. Yes, they're spiritually, they're connected together in a spiritual sense, but they they themselves are independent churches, not derived, they don't have authority derived from any centrally located church anywhere else. Now, when responding to the question as to how local churches are to relate to each other, then if you don't have a national church which has a hierarchical model which can dictate how local churches should operate, then how do local churches operate together then? And to John Cotton, uh, he argues elsewhere that these congregations are standalone, but he also states that no church hath power of government over another. But each of them have chief power within itself, and all of them equal power, one with another. Each church have received alike the power of binding and loosing. So again, the key to the kingdom, again, as a common motif in ecclesiology of this period, opening and shutting the kingdom of heaven. But one to another, all of them are sisters. So again, he's making it clear that there's not a case where you have a hierarchical understanding of church. Each church is independent and autonomous. Now, John Owen, who has previously mentioned, was influenced by Cotton sufficiently to move from a Presbyterian to a Congregationalist position, was to also assert similarly that regarding the limitations of ministers in the church, 
that the church, that no church officer was intended to relate to more churches or any other church than a singular particular congregation, as opposed to these hierarchical uh, models, Episcopalianism or Presbyterianism, where, again, you have this idea of a national church, and it's that national church which dictates, okay, this congregation is going to get this minister, and we're sending this minister there. What John Owen is saying, no, that churches themselves decide, firstly, who their ministers are, but also those ministers only have authority within the realm of that congregation. So it means, uh, for example, Todd can't get up and just go to the next another Baptist church elsewhere and go, well, I'm a pastor, I'm telling you guys what to do. So um, let's see. Uh, so John, uh, da, da, da. The congregationalists were certain that contrary to Presbyterian hierarchical views which depended upon the structure of a singular universal visible church, that each local congregation was autonomous and our church, and that the keys were provided to each church separately by virtue of being a gathered church, as in, remember, a gathered church is the assembly, right? It's the individuals who gather. And by individuals gathering together, willfully to gather together, for the worship of God and mutual edification, they themselves comprised the church, and that's where the, the, the authority came from. Christ gave, gave them the authority by them gathering together as a church. So what was the church? Well, rather than a universal, visible church, it was as Baptist minister Hercules Collins states below, citing John Owen. And, and the fact that Hercules Collins actually cites Owen shows how similar and overlapping the Baptist and congregational understanding of the local church is. In fact, you find uh, because Baptists came from congregationalism, there's a lot of uh, there's a, a lot of interplay between both camps. And so, citing John Owen, um, he goes: a society of persons. This is a church, a society of persons caught out of the world, or their. Na- or their natural worldly state by the administration of the word and spirit into the obedience of faith or the knowledge of the worship of God in Christ joined together in a holy bond or by special agreement for the exercise of the communion of saints and due observation of all the ordinances of the gospel. So churches were only to be comprised of those who willfully met together, right? So people who actually gathered together, carrying out together that which uh, Christians have been called to do. Rather than being an inherited model, whereby authority was inherited through being underneath, visib- uh, uh, underneath visibly a national church, the keys were given to those who willfully came together in intentional physical fellowship or the desire to worship God and, and obey God through the gospel ordinances that God had granted his bride. Now, by comprehending the church as such, um, uh, to be, to, sorry, to, by comprehending the church to be as such, defined on a local congregational basis, so not as a national church, but as opposed to the in, individual independent lo, uh, local churches, this not only placed Congregationalists and Baptists at odds with both Presbyterians and Anglicans, but it also meant that congregational, uh, congregations also avoided one of the most significant issues of that period. Uh, which was uh, which was a question of who was to be included within the membership, because under the idea of a national church, of uh, under the National Church of England, individuals who would attend the closest assembly to which they lived. Okay, I live in this area. I'll just attend a local church. Um, and as you may be aware from the last uh, the last time, or you may remember from the last time, uh, last lecture, uh, non uh, non attendance to church due, due, uh, during the Elizabethan area. Uh, era was criminalized 
You didn't go to church, you could go to jail. So, again, put it into perspective. This is a national church. You just go to your local church. So, under the National Church of England, individuals would attend the closest assemblies to which they lived, and it was a given that everybody in society would be in attendance. However, this led to the understanding of a mixed body, where it was understood that all people within a Christian society would attend church for their betterment. Uh, and as long as they verbally profess Christ, that would be sufficient. So you said you believe Christ, good enough. However, as Matthew Bingham notes, uh, by congregationalists foregoing an overarching national structure, local congregations were freed from an obligation to include all those living within a parish boundary and were instead empowered to craft membership roles which reflected a purer form of Christian communion. This new approach omitted not only, uh, sorry, this new approach omitted only visible saints and ended the national ch- uh, church's pen- uh, chant to promiscuously allow any, or, any and all into parish fellowship. So whereas national churches, okay, you just come to church, you say you believe Jesus, good, just come, uh, that, that'll be fine. The congregationalists went down the avenue of the local churches, but the local churches are only comprised of visible saints, those who believe. Now, going on to the next header, congregationalists and their bapt- uh, baptistic offshoots understood the fellowship of the local assembly or only to comprise those who were regenerate, a so-called gathering of visible saints. It was held that these gatherings were to physically reflect participation within Christ's spiritual kingdom and specifically, and specifically involvement in the spiritual reality of the new covenant. If you're a believer, you're, you're part of the new covenant of which Christ is the head, and that should be uh, physically manifested by, through the local church. So if you say you're a believer, uh, that you're in, uh, you're a covenant believer, that you're within the new covenant, then that should be seen through participation of the local church. There should be uh, effectively an overlap between the the membership of a local church and participation in the new covenant. Um, as such, due to the nature of the willful gathering of the local church, it was perceived that any, um, that any who sought membership within the church should provide their testimony, informing the congregation as to how God had changed them, um, and, also how they, uh, and also that their lives mirrored their testimony as much as possible. Uh, so, uh, so again, for these local churches which comprise the visible saints, how did you become a member? Well, based on one professional faith, but also the, the fact that your life actually mirrored your profession. So if you were actually saying, yes, I'm, I'm a believer, God has changed me, this is much, but then I'm, going, I'm, uh, then I'm just known for vice and wickedness, and then all of a sudden they're like, well, you're saying you're Christian, but your life, on the other hand, is completely at odds with your profession. That, that's where they take this into a situation. Um, so membership itself was guarded based on uh, the fact whether individuals were uh, regenerate. As, as much as one could perceive, perceive it. Um, so membership into the church was then on a basis as to whether one could credibly reflect participation in God's kingdom. And as such, membership was limited to only those who could, in good faith, be seen as a believer through both profession and outward life. John Owen, who was, a, uh, uh, was to hold that church membership was not a rite of passage but a status conferred only on those who could narrate an experience of conversion, which claim had to be supported by a serious and purposeful lifestyle. 
Now, this was to be at no notable odds with, Pres uh, with the Presbyterian understanding, which, taking its lead from the Reformation, understood that the church was always going to be a mixed body. Uh, again, lending to the Augustinian idea of that the church has a mixed character with both, comprising of both believers and unbelievers, where true believers worshipped alongside those, who, um, those whose outward profession lacked any real corresponding inward spiritual change. The wheats and tares grew together in the church. Now, while Anglicanism had also been utilising this understanding as its basis for parish enrolment of church members, again, you live in the parish boundary, you're going to be enrolled, you're going to attend the church, yes, wheat and tares all going to grow together, so it doesn't really matter. You say you believe Jesus, that's fine. Um, whilst that was um, how the Anglicans operated up until that point, Presbyterians particularly appealed to the continuity that they perceived existed for God's people between both Old and New Testaments. Indeed, one cannot fa truly fathom the differing ecclesiological outworkings between Presbyterianism and congregationalism without recognizing the essential role of covenant theology here. Um, and specifically that the reason for divergence came down to both how uh, Baptists and congregationalists uh, and Presbyterians understood the interplay between the Old and New Covenant. And the New Covenant being... Um, but a new administration, if anyone's familiar with uh, the Presbyterian model, um, the Presbyt um, a new covenant being but a new administration or application of the same covenant as the old. I'm talking about the covenant of grace, of course, as opposed to something completely and radically new, which the Baptists contended. So the Presbyterians went, the old covenant and the new covenant, uh, uh, the same covenant, just administered, administrated differently. And as such, because they are truly the same covenant, uh, this is the covenant of grace, the, uh, uh, there's effectively a continuity that exists between both the old and new covenant. And that, therefore, if we want to understand how certain things work in the new covenant, we should be looking at the old and seeing how that carries over. Whereas the Baptist understanding was, no, the new covenant was completely and utterly new. So when it says new covenant, it is indeed new. Now, however, Israel was to, uh, understood to have been... Um, However, Israel, in a Presbyterian understanding, was understood as having been designed to be a mixed-body covenant community by including individuals who possessed both the outward sign of covenant membership, that's circumcision, even while lacking any inward spiritual faith, Presbyterians held that this was a case also under the new covenant, that individuals could belong to the covenant community, so they could belong to the church, receive its sign, baptism, but only possess its blessings externally, uh, not as uh, those who salvifically belong to the church. This understanding, of, for example, ble uh, external blessings is by being within the uh, by being within uh, the body with actual believers. You benefit from not only hearing God's words and, and ordinances being carried over, uh, carried out, but those those blessings, of course, are limited. And also, they're not salvific. So, the, the blessings of being um, an unbeliever within the body of believers is limited, but it's still there. Uh, but this gave rise within the Presbyterian understanding of an internal and an external distinction, whereby true believers were internal members of the church, whereas those who were within the church but unconverted, while being outward members, were external to the church. Or, to quote the Dutch, uh, reformed theologian uh, Hermann Hoxema, 
and I think he puts it, uh, this, this um, understanding pretty well from uh, an illustration. Uh, he puts it that the elect and the reprobate are in a natural, organic sense of the uh, word, temporarily one. So in the church, you have wheat and tares, you have believers and unbelievers, um, elect and reprobate. So they join together as temporarily one. The reprobate shell, right, so the reprobate shell, serves the organism of the elect of the church. The, true, the two are separated along the line of election and reprobation by an ever-continuing process. And in the end of the world, the organism of the elect church will be finally and completely separated from the rep, reprobate shell. So what Hoxham is saying there right, is that the church itself, you have a, uh, you have a uh, because it has both, it's mixed body, it has both believers and unbelievers in there, it's a shell, right? And when, when finally it comes to pass that uh, the, uh, the final day comes and the Lord returns, uh, effectively the elect, the reprobate, the elect will be taken up to God, uh, up to be with Christ in glory, and the elect shell of all those people who were in the church who are unbelievers will, of course, dissipate. So it's, uh, it's only a temporary um, joining, which will eventually yes, uh, disappear. Now, on this point, the Congregationalists were in a vehement disagreement, as it was not about whether the church would contain unsaved people, because even, let's face it, even uh, the best attempts at guarding the gateway and the membership into the local church, men, um, we don't know each other's hearts. Right? So uh, at the end of the day, the, the reality is as much as you try to make the local congregation uh, a reflection of the uh, a reflection of the invisible church or, and the, uh, and as much of, of uh, reflecting the covenant community there's always going to be people who become members of the church who aren't saved so that's not in disagreement here but the question rather was whether this mixed body character of the church was firstly done by divine design like the Presbyterians argued that it was and secondly, as to how desirable a mixed body actually was for the undertaking of the duties that assembly was called to do. Because as many of the duties that believers were gathered uh, together were called to do, such as the one another's, well, a lot of them presume a regenerate church, not a church largely comprised of unbelievers. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of arguments. Of course, like we went in and talked about uh, in early uh, chapters of Acts, where they are, uh, they, it's presuming a regenerate church, regenerate believers. Yet while congregationalists disagree with Presbyterians as to the composition of the church and on the internal-external distinction, preferring the visible saint understanding, it was on this subject on the inclusion of infants in church that saw uh, Baptists deviate from their Peter baptistic um, congregational cousins. So again, uh, very, very much, uh, in very, uh, very much, uh, Baptists and congregationalists were aligned on a lot of understanding of what the local church looks like. But when it came to the matter of infants, that's when they parted way. As, uh, of course, they were still in fellowship with each other, but they disagreed uh, considerably on this point. Now, for Presbyterians, the promises of Christ were to be appropriated not only for the believer, but for the believer's children. For in the Old Testament, looking at that continuity between old and new, so what continues over, um, 
For in the Old Testament, when the covenant promise was given to Abraham, not only was he and the men with him circumcised, but it was also undertaken by his children, as you can read in Genesis 17, who were also understood to be recipients of the promise of Abraham. Now, with circumcision being the outward inducting sign, as in how one gets inducted into the old, um, the old covenant uh, administration, and the baptism being the, uh, the, the new uh, inducting sign, it was understood that the recipient of the sign were to be the same, as how do you become part of the uh, covenant community in the Old Testament? By the act of circumcision, not, uh, not only by yourself, but also for your children. And then, okay, that carries over into the new, because we're talking about one people of God, we're talking about, uh, from Presbyterian understanding, we're talking about um, one ultimate covenant, which is administrative, uh, administrated in two different ways. And so how does one become part of the uh, covenant community in the new, under the new covenant? Well, they do the sign, the inducting signs, and instead of circumcision, it's now baptism. But the recipients are still the individual and their children. That's the Presbyterian understanding. Um, were to be uh, uh, the same to believers and their children. As John Calvin remarked, uh, then since the Lord immediately after the covenant was made with Abraham ordered it to be sealed in infants by an outward sacrament, how can it be said that Christians are not to attest it to the present day and seal it in their children? So again, Calvin saying, well, because this was a pattern in the old, so should it be the pattern in the new. Indeed, the promises of Jesus were understood to be extended to children by virtue of the belief and belonging of their parents. With Peter's exhortation, as Albie read out for us earlier, in Acts 2, 39 seemingly supporting such an understanding, whereby Peter states, Repent and be baptized, each of, you, uh, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children." And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, I've I've seen Presbyterians cite this verse numerous times to show that again this promise shows that the promise extends not only to oneself but also to the children. But you'll notice if you continue after children for all who are far off, so again promises. Are, but then this qualification comes at the end, as many as the Lord our God will call. They could be you could be your children, could be as many who are far off, as many as God will call. Anyway, um, due to the reality of their parents being believers, infants were understood as being federally holy. Right? So infants of believers were understood as being federally holy. That is, being under the federal headship of their parent, their believing parents, and specifically but not exclusively their, their fathers. As believers were under the headship of Christ, so two infants were under the headship of their parents until the time in which they exercised faith. As such, due to this federal holiness and the virtue of their believing parents, children were to be baptized and solemnly received into the bosom of the visible church. Now, the baptism of infants for Presbyterians were to be presumptive, whereby after baptism they were to be treated as Christians with infants being under the nurture of the church until one day they were able to give credible profession or evidence as to their spiritual state. However, for all intents and purposes, baptized infants were deemed as legitimate partakers of the covenant community, even prior to the emergence of faith. 
It was understood that just as a seed cast on the ground and provided moisture does not germinate instantly, so too a child under the word and within the community may take a period of time before they come to the point of faith. As such, baptism itself is not to be understood as necessarily uh, efficacious upon an infant. And its true blessing, um, and its true blessing and bestowing of God's grace is not tied to the very moment of time wherein it's administered. So, when an infant is baptized, uh, that that uh, there and then, that baptism isn't efficacious upon it. But rather, baptism is understood as being effectual at the moment real faith and repentance was brought forward. Baptism acting then as a confirmation and seal of the spiritual reality then wrought. So, one's an infant's baptized, but the reality of receiving and being a recipient of the blessings which come with baptism only occur at the point of the exercise of actual faith. Um, and then membership soon followed. Yet, while for those who were never professed faith, um, yet for while the, for those who never professed faith, their baptism meant nothing. Baptism was also seen as a sign of induction into the community. Problematically, then. Uh, this meant that someone could belong to the to the covenant, as in the, to the covenant community, the new covenant community, until they no longer were, evidenced by the fact that they never believed, uh, possibly to even begin with. So again, because there's a presumption that they are Christians, and that's something which will be confirmed later in their lives, the reality is that they, infants are treated as being part of the covenant community until... They show and demonstrate through their lives simply the profession that they're not a Christian and they are not then part of the covenant community. Um, however, this was to be seen as one belonging externally, so again, this internal external distinction, as one belonging externally but not internally, part of the church being, of course, a mixed body community. Now, this was a point where, whereupon corrugationalists disagreed with the Presbyterians, even though they themselves believed in infant baptism. Because they held to the understanding, like uh, where Baptists uh, took it from, of visible saints. And again, a congregation, a church, is comprised of people who believe. But membership was, uh, membership was reserved for those who professed faith. Yet at the same time, congregationalists continued to baptize infants even if they did not become sorry even if they did not become sorry need to rewrite that did not become a member until they became a visible saint or at least a, a full member within that congregation for congregationalists infants were baptized not with a presumptive understanding of the infant's regenerative state but with the hope that the promises given through the parents would be realized as the infants come into the care of the church. So an infant's baptized, and it's not taken, okay, you're now a Christian. But it's understood that now that you're being baptized, through the promises which have, uh, which have been made and given to your parents, you know, the promises of Christ, as you are now part of the church, you'll be nurtured, and through the, uh, the, baptism, the baptism acts as, you could say, um, an encouragement and eventual confirmation of your state, as opposed to saying, you are a, a believer. Um, however, why for Presbyterians, baptism were rec was recognised as being an inductive sign of individuals, uh, including infants, into the covenant community. So baptism is a sign and 
the, uh, the ordinance or sacrament to become part of the covenant community. Um, for congregationalists, uh, baptism was seen as a sign set apart for believers and their children, but not the entry into the local church, which actually was the agreement to the local church's covenant. So as many of you are aware, we have a church covenant. Uh, church covenants is um, something which goes back to the first congregationalist and, and Baptist uh, churches. And for congregationalists, being part of the church is in a way agreeing, willfully agreeing to that church covenant because you're saying, hey, I want to be part of the gathered body. And so that itself was how one became part of the covenant community, not baptism, contra the Presbyterian understanding. However, the undertaking of baptism of infants meant that the congregationalist continued to hold to an internal, external distinctions of sort, uh, which the idea of a visible saint uh, model, which they held, implicitly denied. Even one belongs to the body or they do not. If you're baptizing infants still into the body, into the community, even if they're not becoming a full member of that uh, body, you're still saying, well, they're part of the church, but they're also not part of the church. Uh, you're either saying our church is only made up and comprised of visible saints, or it's comprised of visible saints and also unbelievers who were infants and who were baptized. Um, indeed, the inconsistency of baptizing infants while holding to a regenerative, uh, regenerative uh, body of believers meant that uh, there arose a number of positions that were contradictory within a number of congregational churches, not least as to whether children uh, could call God their father in an intimate spiritual sense. Even John Owen, as Crawford Gribbons notes, argued that the children should be regarded as being outside the boundaries of the church and the pale of salvation, but like his congregational Presbyterian colleagues, he, that's John Owen, insisted that they should still be able to call, address God as their father. Now, congregationalists would also encounter further problems because, again, they're trying, to, they're trying to hold these two positions in tension. One, the church is only of regenerate believers. Secondly, we want to baptize infants. And so congregationalists would encounter further pro uh, problems in disputes in New England over the so-called halfway covenant that we referred to in the last um, lecture uh, in the 1650s. As, it, as there arose a generation of believers who were baptized as infants and they were actually part of the church. They didn't have full membership, so they didn't partake of the Lord's Supper. They, didn't, they couldn't vote, but they were still a part of the church. And all of a sudden, these individuals who were baptized as infants, they had their own children. And they wanted to baptize, have their own children baptized. So all of a sudden, you have unbelievers, which are constituted as unbelievers because they're not part of the visible saints, wanting to baptize their own children. And for the congregationalists, they held to, similar to the Presbyterians that there were promises made to, to believers and their children. But these are, believe, that these are the children of unbelievers. And so well, how did, the, how did uh, many congregationalists respond to this? Well, they started allowing the baptism of, the, uh, of these individuals into the church. Um, and by eventually allowing the baptism of children belonging to unconverted ch uh, church members, who themselves became partial church members, even without the um, profession of faith, but by virtue of their baptism, this eroded further the understanding of a congregation of visible saints that congregationalists insisted upon. 
Now it was only to be uh, it was only to be um, it was to be only the Baptists who undertook the comprehension that local church was to be only for those who had a credible uh, profession of spiritual change and who willfully came together in order for mutual edification and worship of God, who took the, this understanding of what the visible saints means to its logical conclusion. The visible saints can only include individuals who believe, not infants. Pushing back against any role for baptism of infants, even though it would open up charges of them being Anabaptist. In fact, if you uh, read the uh, if you read the first uh, London Baptist Confession in 1644, it goes those who are wrongly accused of being Anabaptist because they pushed back and denied infant baptism. And to be honest, being called an Anabaptist in 17th century England was a naughty word because Anabaptists were known as doing a whole bunch of uh, causing a whole bunch of upheaval on the continent which led to the death of thousands, if, uh, if not tens of thousands. So, being, so Baptists were like, we don't want to be called or associated with them. Um, even for it would open up charges of Anabaptists or worse. Now, when speaking of the challenges of infants being part of a regenerative church, John Spilsbury, one of the first Baptist uh, ministers in the 17th century, he states the, uh, the following. Baptism is said to be given of God as an ordinance to confirm faith in a subject baptized and so to be presupposed or else not to be administered. Uh, again, what he's saying there is that you baptize those who say that they are believers and show, you know, testify to that, and so you are presuming that they are Christians, so therefore you, you, you baptize them. Otherwise, you don't baptize them. Now, if God gave it to, uh, to that end, for to confirm faith, then he never intended the same to be administered upon any, but only such as have faith. So it's only for those who have faith. And so much the next words affirm, which say that it must be presupposed or else not administered. Now, I suppose it is meant that faith in such is to be presupposed from some ground or visible effect of faith, uh, uh, in appearance at the least. For no man can properly presuppose a thing without some appearing ground from whence he, um, his supposition must arise. Again, we, we base uh, the act of baptism on not only someone's credible profession of faith, but also the, out, the visible outworking of that spiritual change in their life. Uh, for no man uh, without appearing ground must arise, specifically in weighty manners. But what ground any man have to presuppose a child in a womb or one that is newly born to have faith and so capable of a seal as to be confirmed by baptism, I cannot conceive, but rather think it to be a great weakness in such that shall so presuppose or affirm. Going uh, again, for in a nice, succinct way, John uh, Spilsbury is saying here, I don't understand how you can baptize infants who can't exercise faith. Now, the... Like, like I mentioned uh, earlier, the whole idea of just going over the, this idea of the national church as well as to go over this understanding of, of, the, of who comprised the church, you know, a regenerate or vi- a visible, uh, the, uh, you know, church of regenerate believers or visible saints is just to kind of help provide the foundations for upcoming weeks where we didn't unpack practical elements of ecclesiology. Uh, but I do want to leave, uh, leave of what is the church from a Baptist understanding. And I've got a, the statement here, which is the article from the uh, 1644 London Baptist Confession of Faith. So most people are familiar with the 1689 or 1677, which was released in 1689. But 
1646 edition of the London Baptist Confession, which originally read in 1644, but this was um, revised and updated, puts the church as this. Jesus Christ hath here on earth a spiritual kingdom, which is his church, whom he hath purchased and redeemed to himself as a peculiar inheritance, which church is a company of visible saints, called and separated from the world, or world by the word and spirit of God, to the visible profession of the faith of the gospel, being baptized into that faith and joined to the Lord and to each other, by mutual agreement in the practical enjoyment of the ordinances commanded by Christ their head and king. That's a wonderful summary of what, how the Baptists understand the church. So why don't I close in prayer, and then uh, if anybody's got any questions resulting to any one of these, um, just come see me up the front afterwards. Happy to go over anything. So let's pray. Dear Blessed Father, we thank you so much for, again, the opportunity we have to delve within uh, the outworking of your word. Uh, Father, we recognize, again, uh, that we were not born or came about in a vacuum, but we stand on the shoulders of uh, 2,000 years of saints going before us. And, uh, Father, we, of course, uh, have the benefit and the very real benefit of your word. And so, Father, help us to come to grapple with these things and come to a, a greater appreciation of your truth. And so, Father, we just pray for these things in your son's most blessed name. Amen.